I know that uh, some of you have been along for the ride over these past several weeks as we have been studying our way through the Apostle Paul's great letter to the church at Galatia long ago. And for those of you who are newer to the circle and may uh, not know what this is all about, let me just quickly catch you up so that you can enjoy what will be the final installment uh, in this series as we prepare uh, to, to move on from here. Uh, Paul has been speaking to a, a collection of churches in uh, a part of the ancient world known as Galatia, which we would call modern-day Turkey, and he has been addressing them, trying to correct some drift in their perspective. Uh, Paul had been uh, very influential in planting these churches in the first place, and it helped them understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the gospel of grace that freed them from the constraints and the burdens of the law, of the Jewish uh, law. Uh, and, and Paul is trying to, to help them see that real Christian faith um, is something which is constantly being challenged by the religious, religiosity of, of our world, and not just by the secular points of view, but also by the tendency of human beings towards moralism, uh, the, the notion that we can save ourselves by our own good deeds, or the, the discouragement that arises when we know our good deeds are, are not, not enough. Uh, and so Paul goes through a, a variety of teachings trying to help people understand the nature of the real faith that Jesus has brought versus the religion that they may have been taught in life. For example, uh, Paul explains to the Galatians that faith can easily become about mere superficial rituals, things like circumcision or uh, rites of various kinds, uh, and, and, and saying certain words perhaps, believing this is what God uh, counts uh, as most valuable. When in reality, as Jesus teaches us, God looks at our heart. God's primary concern is, is our heart being change to become more like his. No amount of ritual and superficial observance can possibly substitute for that inner life, that heart change that God seeks above all. Uh, faith can also become a way of exulting in our superiority towards other people, our sense of, of moral um, superiority. Uh, but Jesus taught us that faith is actually a journey towards increasing humility rather than su superiority. It, it, the, one of the real marks of spiritual maturity is, is how humble we are before God and, and because of our sense of his goodness and his uh, servant-heartedness, we also become uh, humble and servant-hearted towards other people. Faith can sometimes be, become for people a uh, belief that we could save ourselves by acquiring enough moral merit badges when Paul teaches it is only through Christ's goodness, only through the grace of God shown on the cross, poured out literally in lifeblood upon the cross of Christ that our true hope is found. And so we no longer put our faith in our abilities, we put our faith in the righteousness of Jesus as sufficient for us. Uh, faith can become a life that is actually uh, a somewhat white-knuckled life of anxiety. Uh, and it is this way, and religious life is this way for many people, a concern that, 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 there, that there may still be judgment 
uh, that may, we may still be punished for what we have done. Uh, but the gospel of Jesus is that Christ has set us free from that fear. We no longer need to be uh, anxious about coming judgment. Uh, but now are free to pursue good out of gratitude rather than a need to try and somehow uh, earn God's good favor. Uh, ultimately, if you could boil it down, religion is, is spirituality dependent on my power and on my practices. Whereas the gospel, real faith, as Jesus and Paul describes it, is about the Holy Spirit's power and produce in our lives, in, through, and in spite of us. That's, that's what, the, what real faith is about. It's about having a daily authentic connection with God, uh, of being engrafted into the vine, as Jesus would say, through which God moves in our lives to change us, to love others through us, and to advance his kingdom purposes with us. And, and if we're staying connected to Christ, as Paul would encourage us to, then we will begin to look less and less and less like merely religious people, and we will look more and more like Jesus himself. Does this make sense? Do you see this distinction? So consider that chart, and just ask yourself honestly, which side of that chart do I tend to live on? Or maybe which side of that chart am I tempted sometimes to live on? Which side would you like to live on and then if St. Paul were here today, I think he would say to us, keep moving from mere religion towards the real faith that Jesus came to give us because there's so much more joy and help and hope on that side of, of, of life. And that's the call of the gospel message uh, that Paul gives throughout Galatians. And then he comes to chapter six. And then he finishes up this great letter in the sixth chapter of Galatians. Up to now, Paul has been doing a massive amount of teaching about doctrine. And I don't know if you felt this over these past weeks. We've learned a lot of theology uh, in these past uh, several weeks. But in the final chapter of Galatians, Paul turns to daily life. And in the space of just 10 verses, at least that's the part we're going to be covering today, Paul outlines two of the most important calls of Christ upon our lives. Two of, two of the ways in which uh, Christ beckons us forward, summons us uh, to be uh, living up to his intentions. And, uh, and if we do these things, if we respond to these two calls we're going to talk about today, it's going to make a real difference in our lives and then through us in the lives of other people. So I want to touch today on just these two calls briefly, and then I'll let you go uh, for the morning. If you want to follow Jesus authentically, for real, then, then you will be somebody who recognizes first that he calls you to be part of a practice of communal restoration. My words here for this. He calls you to join him in a process of communal restoration. Here's how Paul puts it in Galatians 6 and verse 1. Brothers and sisters, he's speaking to the community here, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, and when we say caught in a sin here, we don't just mean uh, we've caught, we caught them at it. <laughs> it means they're ensnared in it. Uh, they've, they've been entrapped in it. 
Uh, You who live by the Spirit, and Paul has been talking throughout this letter about the difference between those who live by the flesh, driven by human passions and desires, uh, often sinful human passions and desires, versus someone who's driven by the power of the Holy Spirit and the fruit that that Spirit brings. You who live by that Spirit should restore that person. What's What's the adverb there? Gently. You should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. You also may be tempted. One of the most critical concepts that is embraced by anybody that authentically follows Jesus is that we are all people in need of restoration. Uh, And that consciousness that I'm amongst a community of people who all need restoration forms us in a very powerful way. And I want to offer you just a little metaphor for this, if I may. Our son and daughter-in-law are moving from from Texas uh, this month up to uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan area, and they have bought their very first home. Uh, It is going to be a great home. It will be a place that will be home first to their wonderful puppy. We've been babysitting that puppy for a month now. Uh, And then hopefully uh, all of the grandparents are praying to marvelous grandchildren to come. Uh, But uh, this house is definitely a fixer-upper. I think if you looked up fixer-upper in the the dictionary, you'd find the picture of this house right next to it. Uh, It has issues. Uh, It has uh, drainage issues. It has some foundation issues. It has uh, some electrical issues, and I could go down the list. I've been up there. I've seen it. Uh, There are issues to be dealt with in this house. Uh, Nobody in the know is scandalized by this. Uh, Nobody who who loves our our kids and has uh, had some exposure to this house in some way is surprised that it needs work or that I'm even naming the fact that it does because first houses are usually like that, aren't they? Uh, Unless you've just been endowed by a massive resource pool from some inheritance source, uh, your first house, chances are, was something of a fixer-upper. Uh, now, our kids and, um, uh, are, are, are fortunate to have all kinds of family and friends that care so much about them that we will help pitch in in the fixing up process. And they've invited us into that with them. The project is big, and, and they need to, to, to seek wise assistance. In fact, it's wise for them to seek assistance in dealing with this situation. Some of us actually have some experience addressing house issues. And I will tell you that my brother-in-law, John DeBoer, will be much more useful than I in this particular uh, way. But we will all, in various ways, come around them and try and help with this house. Uh, If we are wise, however, we others are going to approach our role in this, as Paul would say, gently. We're going to be careful about not over-meddling in our kids' affairs here. Our son and daughter-in-law do not need critical, controlling help. They need compassionate, considerate help as they address the needs there. And if we are savvy, we're also going to approach our role in this process humbly. Humbly. As Paul would say, we're going to watch ourselves 
and we're going to avoid the temptation to be haughty or hasty with our intervention because truthfully, we've got issues in our own houses too. We've got stuff we're working with. I hope you see the analogy here. Our kids have a first home that needs work. You and I and everybody else we know have a first life that needs work. Right? This is the first time and only time around for all of us. And, and the house of our life also needs work. And it's a learning process. And our lives are affected by, by sin the way that uh, a house can be affected by mildew or rot or termites or poor plumbing or old wiring. We do not have to be embarrassed ever that we have issues with our first life. We just have to go about addressing those issues and if we're wise, seeking the help of others with that. Do you see this, this analogy? Paul tells the Galatians that the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be a people committed to communal restoration. The apostle Paul says, and I quote verse two here, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ, which as we read in John chapter 13 and verse 34, is the command to love other people the way Jesus loves them. That's the law of Christ. He boils down all the rules and regulations of the Old Testament law into just one basic principle. Love people the way I've loved you. And Jesus, as you know, loves people how? Gently and humbly, and perseveringly, I might add. He loves us enough to meet us right where we are, and he loves us too much to leave us that way. He wants to renovate us. He wants to be part of that process of communal restoration. So here's my question this morning. What if this church, and what if each one of the families and households within the church, and what if all of the friendship circles that we have influence over or the parts of the workplace that, that, that we can shape in some way. What if, if all of those places, all of those communities became places where it was okay to admit, for everybody in the circle to admit, I'm a fixer-upper. I'm a fixer-upper. I'm working on my issues, but the burden of doing all the fixing by myself or of pretending that I really don't have anything that needs fixing, fixing. This, is, this is too much for me. What if, what if the environments we shape could be places of freedom? For freedom, Christ has set you free, we learned last week. Uh, freedom to declare that we are fixer-uppers. And what if you and I could gently and humbly offer our help to other people and welcome their help in our own lives, what might be the impact of that? What kind of freedom might we enjoy from getting to that place? And what kind of freedom might it create for other people? And what good could come from that? The story is told of a, of a queen of a great country who had two sons twin sons actually, and as they grew up to manhood, 
the queen knew that she had to designate one of them as the crown prince, but there was a problem around this because there was some confusion about which of these two boys had been born first. Those who knew the young man regarded them as equal in intelligence, charm, physical strength, many other marvelous qualities, but their mother thought that she detected in one of them a trait not necessarily shared by the other. And so calling them to herself, the queen said, my sons, the day is coming when one of you must take the throne. And the burdens of sovereignty, she said, are heavy indeed. And so to discover which of you can bear those burdens most cheerfully and constructively, I am sending you both to a far corner of my kingdom. And there in the far distant uh, reaches of my kingdom, one of my advisors will be there, one of my subjects will be there to meet you, and, and he will place equal burdens upon your shoulders. And my crown will go to the one who first returns back here to the palace bearing their burdens like a king should. Well, in a spirit of friendly competition, the boys set out from the palace and headed out to the far edges of their mother's kingdom. Soon they came upon an elderly woman. She was struggling under a very great weight. It was clear that it was too heavy a weight for her frail body to manage on her own. And one of the boys said, hey, let's stop and help her. The other replied, you don't understand. We've got a burden of our, cell, of our own to worry about. That's what mom said. Let's be on our way. And the objector just went on down the road, continuing the journey while the other one stayed behind to aid the aged woman. Along the road from day to day, this second son found others who also needed help. He met a, a blind man who took him two miles out of his way to assist him to his destination. He met a lame child who slowed him down to a snail's pace, a cripple's walk. Eventually, the, the second brother did reach the edge of the kingdom and met one of his mother's advisors who strapped the promise, weighed upon his shoulder, and bid him to head on home. And when the boy finally got back to the palace, his twin brother was there already at the gate, but without the great heavy backpack that the second son was still carrying. I don't understand, said the one who was already at home. I don't get it. I, I, I told our mother that the burden that she gave was far too heavy for any one of us to carry. How did you do it? And the second son pensively paused and he said, you know, I don't entirely know, but I just suppose that when I helped others carry their burdens, I built greater strength to carry my own. I don't want us to miss that last part. 
about the value of gaining greater strength to carry our own burdens. The call of Christ to shape communities that help each other with our burdens, be those issues of sin or or struggles of other kinds is enormously important. As I said, it's the, the first call. But it does not eclipse a second major calling that the Apostle Paul underlines in these next verses. Paul writes in verse three. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. By that I think Paul means as we participate in the work of communal restoration, we cannot lose sight of the other side of the coin that is the call to personal responsibility. We're called to communal restoration on the one side and we're called to personal responsibility on the other. In modern terms, I think Paul would say, don't start thinking of yourself as the chipper Joanna Gaines who can renovate everybody else's life. You're gonna play a constructive role out there, but don't think of yourself in, in overly grandiose terms. You are not the Messiah. Do not think of yourself as the Marvel superhero who can carry everybody else's burdens. Each one of us should test our own actions, says Paul. We should ask, what are the sins and the struggles that I am aware of in my own life right now? Am I giving enough attention to those? Am I so busy out there trying to address other people's needs that I'm ignoring my family's needs or even the needs of my own body and spirit? What am I doing to address the issues in my own house? Then says Paul, they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else for each one should carry their own load. So many of the ethics we read about in the Bible are, are, are ethics held in two hands. They involve tensions, managing tensions, freedom and discipline, grace and truth, bearing others' burdens, carrying our own. And this is another one of these tensions. I like the way that Pastor Andy Stanley from the Atlanta area puts it. He says, you and I were created to be responsible. And this is a very important message for an age in which increasingly we're expecting everybody else to be responsible for our stuff. When we have a problem, we often say, it's somebody else's fault. Stanley would say, no, 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 we were created to be responsible beings. Before there was even sin in the world, in the Genesis story, God gave humanity massive responsibilities. Responsibility to, 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 to care for their relationship with him and their relationship with one another and their relationship with the animals and, and to care for the garden itself. Stanley writes, we are actually happiest when we have responsibility and when we are managing it well including responsibility for ourselves. And, and when we don't have responsibility or, or if we are not managing it well, think of Adam and Eve after the fall, you feel bad about yourself. Responsibility is a wonderful gift and privilege. And when we don't manage it, 
We feel bad about ourselves. You were created, right, Stanley, to manage and carry responsibility and to carry it well. We've also learned from Scripture, and I'm sure you've learned from life thus far also, that any community, whether it's a, a family, uh, a church, an organization, a business, a city, even a whole country, wherever there's a community of any size and people are taking their responsibility, their personal responsibility very seriously, you need fewer rules and regulations. In fact, this was one of the founding principles of this country. The founders understood that if people held themselves as responsible to God, there wouldn't need to be all of the laws and regulations and coercive influences because people would be self-governing or, or God would govern by the power of his spirit in their minds and hearts. Rules and regulations are needed, Andy Stanley writes, when people begin to act irresponsibly, which is to say when they're no longer being responsive to the call of God in life. Have you ever noticed that when somebody decides, I'm not going to be responsive to God. I'm not going to, to make choices and decisions based on some divine authority. I'm, I'm not going to be responsible about the way I drive, the way I use my body, the way I talk to people, the way I talk about people, the way I spend money or handle conflict or interact with my family co or co-workers. Uh, I'm just not going to make decisions based on a sense of responsibility. Have you ever noticed that when people do this, their irresponsibility becomes somebody else's responsibility. I, I'm currently watching uh, a series called My 600-Pound Life on television. And it's the story of people's lives who have gotten degree by degree by degree completely out of control. And they've lost the ability to take responsibility for their own choices. And now it's amazing how often they're blaming other people or how, how other people now have to take responsibility for them because they didn't exercise it for themselves. Um, which again is why Paul says, each of you should test your own actions. Am I being responsible? Stanley points out that as long as you're comparing yourself to those around you, uh, determining that you're better than some and, and not quite as good as others, you run this risk of deceiving yourself into being responsible. Irresponsible, rather. Oh, I can do this because I know at least I'm not doing that. Um, as long as you're comparing yourself to others, you can make excuses for yourself. But when you begin to compare yourself to yourself, when you begin to compare yourself to, to the call of God alone, then you make progress in life. You have a reliable plumb line, a starting place, from which to move and to assess yourself. It's only when you tune out everyone else's status. One of the worst things about uh, social media is that we're paying all this attention to other people's status and, and not reflecting perhaps enough about our own condition. 
it's when we tune that out that we begin to reach our potential and take on our own God-given responsibilities. For each of you, Paul says, should carry your own load. Let me say in closing today that I know that all of us have got lots of responsibilities. We've got responsibilities to our family, to our workplace, to our schools, to our churches, to our country. We've also got tasks that are very particular and personal to, to each of us right, right now. Would it make a difference, you think, if all of us stopped comparing ourselves to others and just focused on what God has given us to do now? And not be overwhelmed by how long that list is, but just to grab one or two of those things and just to start addressing one or two of them today. Would it make a difference? Would it help if we stopped asking other people to do for us what we can do for ourselves or stopped blaming um, other people for what we should have done for ourselves or stop ignoring what Jesus is clearly calling us to do for other people. And, and, and that's part of this creative tension too. And how would those decisions change life for us? How would they change life for other people around us or maybe even for our nation? Paul concludes this teaching by going to a very fundamental principle of life. Something that God has just sown into the nature of things. And he puts it like this. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh, they will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. And as I've said to you today, doing good in the sense of responsibility is, is both concern for others appropriately and concern for carrying what we need to carry. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who belong to the family of believers. If there's one community that we want to especially welcome into the restoration process and help with the restoration process, it's certainly the family of believers. So let's be a people who answer the call of God to communal restoration and personal responsibility. Let's love enough that we bear each other's burdens and in the process develop greater strength to carry our own. For this, I believe, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.